Hey, good morning. Good to see you guys. So did you come by land or by sea this morning? <laughs> when I woke up this morning, it was pretty dry out, but then I saw some of our parking team members come in, and it looked like they had just gone wading in the river. So uh, parking team members, I see one, Paul, any other ones, thank you so much for what you guys do. Yeah. Give your local parking team member a hug, not the finger, okay? That's the rule of thumb around here. That's the, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, Paul says thank you. There's a little bit of truth in every joke, they say. Hey, welcome to Arbor Church. If we've never met before, my name's Garrett. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and uh, it's great to have you here. Thanks for being here this morning. We're in the middle of a series, as that Roland video suggests, called Questions Jesus Asked. And we're looking at this because Jesus had a really unique way and, more importantly, a unique reason for asking questions. Usually, he asked a question not because he needed to know the answer, but because the person who he was asking the question to needed to know the answer. Maybe another way of saying it, a simpler way of looking about it is Jesus tended to ask questions that we were either unaware of or unwilling to ask ourselves. And so today we're going to dive into Luke chapter 7. Luke is one of the four Gospels, part of the New Testament. If you open your Bible like in half and go to the right slightly, you'll find the book of Luke. Luke was a doctor. He was very specific in his writing, like a, like a scientist. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. And before I read it, just some quick context. There's basically two main characters in this story. Well, three if you include Jesus, but two. There is a religious man referred to as a, a Pharisee, as a, a religious expert, okay? And then there is a non-religious woman. And basically this story is going to, uh, I don't know what the right, compare is not the right word, but it's going to chronicle the two of them kind of side by side, okay? And so I'm excited about this because I know anytime we're here on a Sunday, there's a couple different people, different people in the crowd. There's those of us that would self-identify as Jesus' followers, as Christians. And as we go through, I think we can see a lot of our story and ourselves in the, in the story of this guy, Simon, the religious guy. And then there's other people in the room that you don't self-identify as Christian. Maybe you're Christian curious. Maybe you're here kind of kicking the tires of this thing. And what does this whole Jesus following movement look like? And so I hope that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, that there's a piece of this that you can connect with and relate to. So if you have a Bible reading device of some sort, you can join me in Luke chapter seven. If not, all of this will be up on the screens in front of you. So let's jump in. I'm gonna read straight through it, starting with Luke seven, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he, being Jesus, went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. 
So he canceled the debts of both. And here's our question. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, uh, is this a trick question? I suppose the one who was forgiven the bigger debt, the one that had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. We you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for this passage. I pray that you would get me out of the way and that your words, your heart would be spoken to each of us today. That what you are communicating in this passage, I believe, is a, a very pertinent, a very relevant message for us here today. So may we hear your voice. May we be encouraged by it. We ask in your name, amen. So if you've been around Arbor for a year or so, this is gonna be a familiar story to you. If you're new, welcome to the club. You can start making fun of me along with everybody else, all right? That's how it goes around here. About a year ago, last summer, I had a bout with a kidney stone, and it turned out to be a pretty gnarly one. Landed me in the hospital. Basically, the kidney stone was so big I couldn't pass it. Caused a backup, infected my kidney, yada, yada, yada. I ended up in the hospital. It was a lot of fun. Jake, the, our other pastor here, was really nice. He kept handing me big boulders that he found out in the landscaping. <laughs> Thought it, yeah, it's so funny, so funny. So I'm laying in the hospital, and my wife, who at the time was pregnant with our now seven-month-old son, and she brought our two daughters with her. And I'll never forget the look on their face as they came and they looked at me and it was so concerned. And they came and they hugged me on the side of the bed. And, Daddy, are you okay? Are you okay? Oh, what happened? I'm so sorry. And in that moment, I've never had as much resolve in my life. I told myself, this is ridiculous, Garrett. You're in your 40s. You got to start taking your health seriously. It doesn't come as easy as it used to. You need to start eating healthy. You need to start working out. You got a long life ahead of you. You got some little kids. You need the energy to play with them. You got to walk these girls down the aisle, right? Like all these thoughts are going through my head. It's time to stop being lazy. You got to take this serious. And so I pulled my wife over and whispered to her and she agreed. And so when I got out of the hospital and went home, we cleaned house, got rid of a whole lot of stuff in our pantry and our refrigerator and went and spent our whole paycheck at whole paycheck, right? You know what I'm talking about? And we brought all this stuff back home and half of it molded before we got to it because something about organic stuff molds in like two days, but that's another story. But I was resolved, I'm gonna eat paleo. And you can ask the staff, every time we went out to lunch, I'd get a salad and an iced tea. It was a really pathetic existence, but hey, I'm, I'm committed. And I'm gonna start working out, which, by the way, Working out at 40 is way different than it was at 20, just if you, hadn't, if you haven't noticed. I started working out, and I got sore, like really sore, like so sore. This, is not, this isn't just like pastoral embellishment. I got so sore, I couldn't walk myself back into the gym for a week. Like my legs were sore to the touch. It, 
Nothing like telling you you're old than, uh, than that. I was like, oh my gosh. You know, you get, anyway, I won't embellish on it. It was bad. So it takes me a week. So I'm thinking, all right, next Monday I'll get back at it. I'll go back in the gym. I'll do arms that time instead of legs so I can at least walk. So I wake up the next Monday and I have a terrible cold. I'm like, oh man, what a bummer. I was so excited to get back into the gym. And I call Jake and say, hey man, I'm not going to be able to, I haven't been this, I'm not going to make it to work. I haven't been sick this long and I'll, uh, this sick in a long time and so it took me about a week to recover from being sick and the next Monday rolls around and says, all right this is our day we're gonna hit it you've ever had one of those days where you wake up and just everything goes wrong from the second you open your eyes my kids were bringing hell into my home they were not having a good time my wife is at the end of her rope Garrett can you please just help me make breakfast and can you get the kids to school yeah sure okay so another day goes by and this just started to become the new pattern. And now I stand up here in front of you and have to honestly say, I'm actually not a whole lot more ahead than I was a year ago. In fact, I'm a year older, so I'm probably even a little bit behind. Yeah, it's funny, right? Funny for you guys. But here's the thing. I still believe all the stuff I thought in that hospital bed. It's the right stuff. It's true stuff. It's good stuff. I need to get my acting gear. Because I was doing this message and I was like, oh, I'm going to have to face this, I, went, I bought a Groupon to another gym, all right? So you can keep track of how well I do this time around. All right, so you're, like, you're asking yourself, hey, all right, this is great. What's the point of the story? First of all, I think I'm not the only one. Please tell me I'm not the only one, right? This is why New Year's resolutions are such a joke. We go into things with this passion, with this resolve to do something, then over time, fades away. It dwindles a little bit. And I think there's a lot of tie-ins, especially for those of us that call ourselves Christians, to our spiritual lives, where at one point in our life, we heard the message of Jesus. We heard the good news. We interfaced in a personal way with the Messiah, full of passion and fervor. And, but over time, for various reasons, that passion that we once had has begun to fizzle out, dwindle away a little bit. Maybe it's seasons in your life. Maybe it's circumstances. Maybe you cost you something, some social equity, some friendships. Maybe people at work are judging you, discriminating against you. Oh, you're one of those right-wing conservatives now, huh? Because apparently being a Christian is synonymous with that. Whatever the reason is, that passion that was once there isn't there as much anymore. And so then we go, well, that's normal. You know, you can't expect that you're going to feel like that all the time. That was the honeymoon phase. There was a heightened sense of emotion on that mountaintop experience, but you can't reasonably expect that would just carry on through the rest of your life. And so then we go into duty. We're just going to do the right thing. I'm just going to do the right thing. I'm going to go to church because it's the right thing. Hey, honey, pack up the car, get the kids. We're going to church. Why, Dad? Because it's just what we do. It's the right thing to do. We're good Christians. Not that it's bad to go to church. You're all here. Congratulations. Thanks for being here. But sometimes that's what we do. We just will ourselves through it. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to present to you today for your consideration that that isn't how it has to be, that we can actually regain and not only regain, but hold on to on an ongoing basis this passion for our faith in Jesus and experience the fullness of him in our life on a daily, ongoing basis. Yes, there might be days that you don't feel that, but if those days are adding up and turning into seasons, 
know that you're in good company. It's normal. It's why we're talking about it here today. But we don't have to accept it as truth. We don't have to accept it as normal. And so, what we're going to look at today, this passage that we're talking about, I think, has the keys to unlocking how we discover and maintain this ongoing passion in our faith. Does that sound okay? Yeah, okay, I heard a couple people. So me and three people are going to have a conversation this morning. <laughs> I know it's not much of a conversation, but I hope, I hope that's okay with you because this is a really cool story. This is one of those stories that a lot of us, uh, those of us that have been in church for a long time, we've heard it before, and we go, oh, this is such a neat story, such a beautiful story. I love her passion. I, she just doesn't care what anybody thinks. She goes right in there and cleans Jesus' feet with her hair, and it's kind of weird, but... Here's the thing, it is kind of weird, right? Like this is an awkward story. Think about it for a second. If we just pull ourselves out of the Bible for a second and put ourselves in normal life, like this is a book or a movie that we're watching, this is scandalous. It's weird. A religious leader is holding a party for the leading candidate in messiahship, all right? He's invited him over to get a closer look to say, can I endorse you, can I back you? And he's got his closest friends around so they can all check him out. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, an uninvited person shows up. Somehow skirted past security detail, somehow had a key to the front door. I don't know how this works, but this uninvited person waltzes in. And what we know about this person is she's the town prostitute. And so a woman of the night, if you will, walks in to a dinner party, unannounced, weeping, wailing so much that she's generating enough tears to wet the feet of Jesus so that she can wash them with her hair, which, by the way, in that day and age, letting your hair down as a woman was illegal. Something tells me she doesn't really care about it at this point. She's like, ah, whatever, we're going for broke, all right? So just picture this scene. In verse 36, it starts off that they're reclining at the table. Back in those days, they didn't have dining tables like we did, where you'd sit in a chair and scoot yourself in and eat at the table. The tables were low. Think of a coffee table. And they had couches around them. And they'd go in and they'd recline, which means they'd lean head first toward the table, leaning usually on their left side, propped up on their left elbow. So looking out that way, and they could easily turn and look at the person on the other side. And so they're kind of in a, in a U-shaped fashion, reclining, leaning with their feet pointed back away from them. Verses 37 and 38, all of a sudden this woman shows up making a huge scene, and it's awkward. You ever watch some of those awkward comedies? Like for me, the movie Meet the Fockers is so funny, but so awkward. You're constantly like kind of looking, but not looking like, oh, don't do it, no, that's, oh, yep, he did it. Dude walked out in a Speedo. That's not good, that's not good. This woman is at the feet of Jesus, weeping and sobbing and creating all of this commotion. Not only is she washing his feet, she's kissing him. This is kind of weird. Pouring perfume on him. But check this out. Jesus doesn't seem phased. There's nothing in scripture, there's nothing in this story to indicate that he acknowledges her. That he turns to her, that he looks at her, that he makes mention, like, hey, <laughs> what's this chick doing? This is kind of weird. Hey, guys, what do you, you know, where's security? Nothing. He just rolls with it. He's talking to the guys. Hey, man, how you doing? Good to see you. Hey, thanks for having me over. Hey, could you, uh, could you pass the hummus? A little hungry over here. 
And so we move forward, and now we see Simon, the Pharisee, whose house it is. Verse 39. And it says, Simon says to himself, I'm not sure what that means, if he just kind of murmured under his breath or what, but he's probably thinking, what the heck is going on here? Are you kidding me right now? Who does this woman think she is? And why isn't Jesus doing something about it? If he knew who she was, how awful she was, how rude she's being, he'd call her out. He'd call her out. And when I step back and look at it, and I think about this for a second, our tendency, my tendency, is to look at the woman and just go, man, this is incredible. Her heartfelt passion and devotion, the gratitude she has to go in there and just not care what anybody thinks and do what she's doing. But if I'm honest with myself, and now on a microphone in front of all you guys, if I'm honest with you, I relate a whole lot more to Simon, to the way he's thinking and feeling, to his posturing, his demeanor. Because if I was having a dinner party and went to all the work to get my house ready and invite people over and sit down at the table, and then someone walks in that's uninvited, which just by the way, if anyone ever walks into my house that's uninvited, I freak out. Do you? Hide, hide the kids, hide your husband, right? That whole thing. But this, some woman comes to my house, crawls under my table and starts washing somebody's feet. I'm like, kids, get upstairs. Tawny, get my gun. You know, like, game on. Maybe call the cops later. Because it's freaking weird. And I think that's why this story's here. To contrast the responses of the woman and Simon. And you'd say, yeah, Gary, that's, pre- <laughs> that's pretty obvious. Yeah, I agree. But I think there's more than just the obvious contrast that we're supposed to see here. Where's the passion? Remember I said that we're gonna look at this passage and I think we're gonna find the key to unlocking the passion for our faith? Where's the passion? And what does this woman know about Jesus that the rest of the people in the room don't seem to know about him? What is driving her to do what she does. And I'm just gonna give you the answer right here. Spoiler alert. This woman knows exactly who she is and what she's done, and she knows exactly who Jesus is. This woman knows exactly who she is, and she knows exactly who Jesus is. And what does Simon say about her in verse 39? He calls her a sinner. This right here, don't miss this. Don't miss this piece. This is the key verse and the point to this entire thing. The term sinner doesn't mean all sins. It was a title reserved for people for an ongoing, unrepentant lifestyle of sin. They are a sinner. But if you just did some of the smaller sins from time to time, you wouldn't be in that category of being a sinner. So you think, hey, my buddy Tony, hey, did you, uh, you see Tony last week? He had a few too many, you know what I'm saying? Oh, my gosh. That's all right. He, I don't think he's got a problem, though. He's not normally like that. Usually he, he cuts it off at the right time, but, dude, he got a rough weekend for Tony. Or did you hear about Becky? She backed into someone else's car in the parking lot last week and took off without leaving a note. Oh, my gosh, can you believe that? Hope she doesn't get caught. So unlike her to do that. Which, by the way, I use that because someone actually did that to us this past week. It's really frustrating. <laughs> if you hit someone's car, just leave a note, man. Anyhow, 
Back to the message. See, because these people aren't sinners. That's not who they are. They just do small sins from time to time. And Jesus is telling this story and asking this question to imply, to reveal something very, very specific to Simon. This is what I want us to catch. What he's implying is the reason he's asking the question in the first place. It's not, it's not, because we'll tend to highlight the woman in this story. It's not that her sins are worse than his, okay? Don't be confused by the money thing and the debt forgiven. It's not, that's not the point. Her sins are not worse than his. And sometimes, some of us, we hear amazing stories like this and we actually go, oh my gosh, that is so amazing. That is such a good story. And at times, I wish I had a story like that. I wish I had a testimony like that. I just, I've never experienced that kind of pain or brokenness in my life. I've never made those really bad decisions. I've just, I've been kind of like mostly good, I guess. And we sometimes actually envy people that have those big testimonies. And so we, you know, is Jesus saying, hey, Simon, if you went out and just sinned like hell and experienced how bad things can be, then you would be able to love much because then you could be forgiven of much. Is that what he's saying? No, that is not what he's saying. We would be missing the point. What Jesus is really saying, what he's trying to expose with this question, who loves him more, is Simon, you don't realize church people, religious people, you don't realize how much you've already been forgiven. You catching this? Much you've already been forgiven. The small sins you've committed need a savior just as much as the large sins those other people. Because in God's economy, there are only two categories, lost and found. Sinner, saved. That's it. There's no hierarchy of sin. That's something we create. That's something we instituted and put into place as we work through our lives. We're all on the same boat, Simon. We're all cut from the same cloth. Every last one of us. This is the point Jesus is trying to make. And we all all of us have the exact same need to be forgiven. But Simon says to himself, this woman is a sinner. And what's he doing? He's doing what we all do. Categorizing people secretly in our hearts and in our minds. And this is not from God, nor is it from the life and ministry of Jesus. Like I just said, there's only two categories in the kingdom of God. And this categorizing, this layering, this scaling of sin, if you will, sabotages our passion for our faith in Jesus because we forget just how much we've been forgiven. Simon says she's a sinner, and that puts her in a lower category, which by default puts him at least in a slightly higher category. And what happens when you put yourself in a higher category than someone else? You need a savior a little bit less than the person in the lower category. Isn't that interesting? And why would I need a savior if I don't necessarily see the need to be saved? So here's the key. 
Here's the key. Self-righteousness equals less need for a savior. Self-righteousness, belief in self, our actions, our works, our getting better along the way equals less need for a savior. And we go home and we wonder, why am I losing my mojo? Why don't I feel that passion and that fervor that I used to feel? And without even knowing it, we're slowly setting ourselves up to trust ourselves because we're a little bit better. And because we're a little bit better, we have a little bit less need for what Jesus originally offered us. We got the whole package at first, and now we just need little slices as time goes on and we make little mistakes. But this woman, remember I said she knew exactly who she was and exactly who Jesus is. Self-awareness equals a total need for a savior. That when we acknowledge that there is no scale, there is no hierarchy, there really is no difference. There's broken and there's redeemed. There's lost and there's found. And when we realize that we're all in that lost category, then we realize we're all the same and we all have a total need for a savior. And Jesus knows that this is a struggle for us. That's why he goes through this story, verses 41 through 47. This slow and subtle shift away from complete dependence on him toward trusting ourselves. And so he's gonna give us some incredible insight into why this woman's responding the way she is and how we can be more like her. That's where he's taken us. With what is quite possibly the most obvious question he asked and most simplistic story he ever told in all the Bible, he says, there's two guys. One, owns 50, one owes 50 denarii, the other 500 denarii. If you don't know, a denarii is basically equivalent to a day's wage. So in modern times, let's put it this way. One person owed about two and a half months of their salary of their wages. It's a lot. Can you imagine having to pay an entire two months worth of what you make right off the top? That's the debt you're in. The other person had over two and a half years worth of their income, of their salary that was owed. And the one who they owed it to forgave the debt, canceled them both. And so Jesus asked Simon, which of these will you, do you think will love him more? That's the question Jesus asked. Which one will love him more? So Simon's like, uh, is this a trick question? This is easy. The one that's forgiven the bigger debt. And like a surgeon with a scalpel, Jesus cuts with precision to the root issue of Simon, and if I'm honest, a whole lot of us in this room today. Is there any question in this woman's mind that she's bad? No, she's bad. She knows she's bad, right? Maybe we play a Michael Jackson soundtrack to this. She knows she's bad. No one needs to tell her. Everyone makes it obvious. She's never been loved. She's never been accepted. She's shunned. The only time she's desired for anything is, well, you know what she does for a living. You can play that out. No one wants this woman. She's bad. But look what an awareness of that does for her. Guess who's in need of a savior? Someone who's really, really bad. And when she meets Jesus, 
when she sees him, when she hears that he is in her town eating at someone's house, there is nothing that can stop her from running in, breaking in, disrupting whatever they've got going on. She doesn't care because for the first time in her life, someone cares about her. Someone loves her. Someone told her she has a future, that there's hope. Because total need equal total gratitude. Total need equals total gratitude. She had an attitude of gratitude, and it is this attitude that brings up the joy and the passion because she knew that she has just been given something that she could never, ever earn on her own. She was doomed, didn't stand a chance until this guy came into town. And we look at this woman, and all of a sudden, we think, well, maybe, maybe we're all lost and broken and we all have a total need for a savior. But over time, we slowly and unintentionally begin to trust ourselves and our learning and our studying and our conversations and our schooling and our church services and all of these things that we do, which none of that are inherently bad. But accidentally, we begin to feel that we are getting less bad because of the things we do. That's called self-righteousness. And thus our total need for a savior has been slightly reduced to some need sometime. When you only have some gratitude, you only have some passion. Is this making sense? This story is about Simon, the religious man who doesn't realize the debt he's been forgiven. The message is, for us as Christians, do you know who you are? And do you know who he is? And do you know what he's offering you on an ongoing basis? Or have you forgotten because you've drifted in to just doing life and going through the motions and doing the right things? Because when you do that, the passion begins to dwindle. And then the rest of the world who is not following Jesus is looking at those who are going, why would I want to do that? It's just a bunch of additional rules and stuff. And okay, you believe in this heaven thing. That's a little sci-fi. Uh, you guys look just like me. Family life's tough. Work's tough. You have to deal with illness. Why would I want to be like that? Why would we want to be like this? If you're not experiencing the fullness of God's great glory and passion for faith and the forgiveness that he's extended us. I just want to give you a quick side note because I think this is really interesting. I think it's key to the point I'm making right now as the world looks in at those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus. There's a posture change when Jesus is talking to Simon. And I think it's a really interesting posture change because he starts talk, talking to Simon. But then he turns and he faces the woman, this very, very bad, sinful woman. But he continues to talk to Simon. That's interesting, isn't it? He's looking at her and he's like, hey, Simon, you see this woman right here? Since I came into your house, she washed my feet, right? And he goes down this whole thing of all the things she did that he didn't do. Just picture this. It's awkward. He's looking at her while he's talking to him. And I think in this we get a really, really cool and amazing view at the personality, at the characteristics, the attributes of God. 
that while he, while he engages in conversation with the religious, his eyes, his gaze, his focus is always on the bad and broken system, the bad and broken people that are stuck in the system. And so we have an incredible opportunity here as a group of people, a church family, to allow this to become us, to be our DNA. This is really the type of culture that Jake and Allison and Anna and I are trying so hard to create here. This group of people that can come together and gather and talk about scripture, but always keep our gaze out there. Never get inward. Never focus on us and what we're supposed to do. But we talk about it while we look at the broken world because it's our story. And the only reason we're in here and not out there is because we met a guy named Jesus that pointed us in a better way. It's all because of him. It's all merited favor, unmerited favor and grace. And so with that, we have this immense gratitude. And we celebrate and we say, thank you, Jesus. I don't have to go through life feeling like a piece of junk, hanging my head low. I can lift my head up and just thank you for giving me life. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you that even when my life is rough, thank you that when my kids are sick and snotty noses and not sleeping and I'm exhausted, thank you that I at least even have three little kids. It's this attitude of gratitude that we have. And then as we talk, to, as we look out to everyone else, it's not that we have all the right stuff and opinions and things to teach them. We just simply, I found someone that knows a better way. You want to join me? Come on. Come on, he'll, he'll tell you. He'll, you guys figure it out together. I don't, that's not my job. That's his job. You guys figure it out. Our job as a family is to talk about these things so that we can constantly have the heart of Christ, which is for the rest of us. You hear me? This is good. This is culturally defining for us as a church. So jumping back in and closing this up, Jesus says this woman loves a lot. She's passionate because she's been forgiven a lot. And he says, he or she who have been forgiven a little loves little. So catch that. Have you been forgiven much? Or have you been pretty good along the way? Because that along the way is the single thing sabotaging your passion for God. And I want to say one more time, I want to be really clear as we wrap this up. This is about an attitude of gratitude, of us getting off of thinking we're better and instead just thank you, God, for the journey you've taken me on. Thank you for how far I've come, but man, I know I still have so far to go. I know who I am, but I know who I am in you, and I'm grateful. It's a, it seems like a razor-thin line, but it's a really significant line. In the spiritual world, it's a, it's a crevasse. It's a huge difference. Because the, as we begin to trust in ourselves, it strips us of our excitement, of our joy, of our passion. But as we understand that we're all in the same boat, not only does it bring back our passion, but it also brings back the ability to just love unconditionally everyone. And I think that's, an amazing story. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. He's talking to the religious guy in this story. 
And he's saying, you've forgotten how much you've been forgiven. But the good news is, it's that far away, that quick. It's just a change of your focus. And the passion comes back. And I believe Arbor Church, as we do this, our very best days as individuals and as a church family, and most importantly, our influence within our community, our best days are ahead of us. And that is incredibly exciting to me. Will you bow your heads and pray with me?